Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. In this episode, as part of the Healthcare Systems, Regional and Comparative Perspectives in Britain and Ireland, 1850-1960 conference, a paper by Professor Mary Daly from University College Dublin. Her paper was entitled, Can We Speak of Healthcare Systems in 20th Century Ireland? I suppose I should begin by saying you've all seen websites where it says this site is under construction. Well, this paper is very firmly under construction and... Uh, it's something I've really started working at. This is a, a very rough prototype, and I just hope it doesn't all collapse. What I'm trying to do here is really look at hospitals in independent Ireland, uh, focusing particularly on voluntary hospitals, but as part of the wider hospital sector. Uh, the period I'm looking at is from the 1920s, up to the New Health Act of 1970. I'm going to spend most of my time in the period after World War II for reasons that I hope will become evident uh, when, when I get talking about it. And what I'm really trying to do is what, what is the contribution role of voluntary hospitals in hospital medicine at this period? Where does it fit in? Uh, you know, if there's a jigsaw, or is there a jigsaw? You know, quite what's its slot in that? And... Then related to that, what are the challenges that the Irish Health Service, uh, uh, the changes in health service present for Irish voluntary hospitals in this period and to the boundaries that are changing between the boundaries between the state and the voluntary hospital in the aftermath of World War II? We don't have a national health service, but on the other hand, there is a shifting boundary. It's not as dramatic as that. I'm writing the paper very much on the assumption that the 20th century is the golden age of hospital medicine. It's a time when hospitals are to the fore in introducing and extending new treatments. And really what I'm trying to work out is how does this happen in the Irish context, given a kind of a very flabby state system, in a sense, in terms of directing it. Um, so I'm looking very much at acute general hospitals. Um, the long-stay people that uh, Virginia's talked about are, are not really part of this paper, but the, but the acute dimension of your hospitals are very much. And because of, um, for various reasons, you'll find the focus is a, in terms of voluntary hospitals is mainly on Dublin because this is really the heart of voluntary hospital land in Ireland. Can I say as well that this is very much a historical black hole, particularly in the period after the late 40s. You've got fairly good overall accounts telling you at the high level evolution in medical in health legislation and Department of Health and so forth. That's fine. You've got then hospital histories written generally by by inside insiders. How the two link fit a you know blank space and that's really what I'm trying to begin to piece together in a very tentative fashion. Um, Irish hospital medicine, and I'm going to start by looking at it in the 1930s, uh, for, uh, is really much a, very much a patchwork of voluntary hospitals, some local authority, and um, which are the descendants of the ones that Virginia was talking about, I'll come to that in a moment, and there's very complex interaction between them. Um, the other point to note is the voluntary hospitals themselves are not a monolith, they're divided on the basis of denomination and affiliation, for example. I, insofar as you're going to get conflicts and tensions within, within, the, within the hospital sector, they're actually more likely to be civil wars, um, with a local authority hospital A sniping at the other one who's got better money and provision, a new hospital and you haven't got yours, and ditto between the voluntary hospitals, it's actually more likely to be, a lot of it is like, there is a sense of watching the other. 
But a lot of the deepest sniping that I've found is actually within, within the same denominational division. I mean, I, I could give you some wonderful statements, paranoia is the way to describe them, where the matter alleges that St. Vincent's is much more, perfect, is much more uh, nicely treated by the Department of Health than they are. In other words, they're almost more concerned about what's happening to their, their denominational neighbour than they are to what's happening in, 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 the, in the, the non-Catholic section of the voluntary sector or what's happening out in the public sector. So um, that's, that's in a sense where I think my question of systems comes in. These, these don't work as coherent entities. There are a lot of soul, you know, of, 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 of solitary players throughout. Um, I want to start by giving you a portrait of uh, the Irish hospitals very, very quickly. In 1933. Why 1933? Because we have a report of the Irish Hospitals Commission in that year, which does a comprehensive survey of the entire story. The commission was established by the Minister for Local Government and Public Health to decide how to allocate the money that's coming into the state from the Irish Hospital sweepstake. Sweepstake, and John referred to it yesterday, was originally established in the late 1920s to meet the financial crisis faced by Dublin Voluntary Hospitals, but the money was so lavish that the government decided you could extend it to a whole range of worthy uh, institutions, uh, TB treatment, mother and baby homes, for example, and most relevant to our papers, it expands to capital spending by local authority hospitals as well. So the commission was set up to work out how this money should be allocated and the first step was that they were going to carry out a survey of hospital and nursing facilities throughout the state and that was going to be the basis for drawing up a blueprint for future investment and the blueprint that they draw uh, follows uh, brings in that term that we've banded around quite a number of times regionalism the, the, the blueprint the idea of the blueprint is for a regional is for a regional system of of uh, of uh, secondary and uh, primary treatment centers the hospitals commission describes two or three types of general hospital in Ireland. there are local authority hospitals which had emerged from the county infirmaries and the 19th century poor law a direct uh, virginia's been talking about voluntary hospitals which are in dublin cork limerick and then there are some hybrids, which are they describe as semi-voluntary hospitals, a combination of local authority slash voluntary, the North and South Charitable Infirmary in Cork would be two examples, or the Waterford Infirmary would be another one of those. The local authority, the ones that Virginia was talking about up to, you brought up in 1901, did you stop roughly there? 1910. 1910, okay. Um, the local authority hospitals are all reconfigured on a county basis. Um, the whole poor law system in Ireland, the whole uh, health welfare system is reconfigured on a county basis in 1920 as part of the Sinn Féin takeover of local government. What the proposal was is one general hospital per county with a resident medical uh, surgical officer and one uh, long-stay institution, the county home. That was the programme on paper. Now, this was in many ways something of a retrograde step because it makes the county the core unit instead of the P PLU. PLUs had the merit been determined on the basis of big town catchment area. Uh, Irish county boundaries don't necessarily reflect the catchment areas uh, for its treatment. Somewhere like County Leitrim defies any geographical logic. Uh, it's much easier to get anywhere out of the county than it is to get from one end to the other. Um, the location of the county hospitals was also determined by all kinds of, in all kinds of interest groups. For example, Croom, which is nowhere in County Limerick, became the county hospital for the county because the IRA leader in the county was medical officer in Croom. 
um, the power of clergy and other interests determined other locations. So sometimes did the fact if they had a newish building that became the county hospital as opposed to a much more significant location where the building might be shabby and not fit for purpose. Now, already in 1933, uh, the Commission was of the opinion that this system was not fit for purpose. It described them, first of all, as mainly, mainly but not completely surgical, to say at this stage, is what they're doing in those hospitals. Um, there's only one medical practitioner, which is a full-time surgeon, and they're making the point that he's no opportunity to consult, there's no expertise, there's no support, and all the rest of it, and that you now need to move towards greater units, teamwork, and cooperative investigation. They wanted 12 regional hospitals with a tier of lower, lesser hospitals underneath it. But they already say it's almost too late to achieve this. The damage is done because owing to the development of many of the county hospitals, already by 1933, there's been investment in some of them, which has taken place. It won't be possible to put a regional system into place. Anyway, they, nevertheless, they go on with an, with an aspirational report of a regional network of hospitals in Ireland. Now, the core principle behind it is this regional network, and they're, go they're going to achieve it based on the existing structures. And the interesting thing about it is that while they describe how their hospital is controlled is a public hospital or a voluntary hospital or a hybrid, they're absolutely agnostic in their recommendations as to the governing status of a hospital. The key decisions that they're taking are where are the beds, where's the demand for beds, who's the clientele there, and then the other factor they build in is where are medical students undergoing clinical training. Um, so the outcome of that is that in Dublin they say voluntary hospitals are the hospitals and voluntary hospitals will continue to be the dominant providers of hospital care. That makes absolute sense. Dublin is very, very unusual. Uh, because in Dublin, the overwhelming majority of the poor were cared for in outpatients and inpatients by the Bondi hospitals. Um, they, the workhouse hospital very much long stayed large numbers of unoccupied beds, but the poor of Dublin went to the voluntary hospitals, of whom there were an enormous number, uh, you know, all, all within walking distance practically. Secondly, these voluntary hospitals trained all the students in the Dublin medical schools. And thirdly, one third of patients in 1933 in Dublin Voluntary Hospitals were from outside Dublin city and county. They're already taking in a significant number of patients from, from outside their immediate geographical area. So the recommendation there is to consolidate the voluntary hospitals into larger hospitals to bring in expertise, but it's going to be voluntary hospitals are going to provide health services in Dublin, a, a, you know, a end of story. Uh, Cork, by comparison, for example, while uh, the voluntary hospitals, the semi-voluntary hospitals, they complain, are not treating that many of the poor. They're actually catering much more to paying patients. They're not providing significant services for the poor. Whereas, as you're right, the, the workhouse St. Vinbar, the workhouse hospital, is actually providing critical uh, acute care for the poor, and it's also a, a clinical trainer for for the UCC medical school. So they want a new public hospital there, which would be controlled by the Board of Public Assistance, uh, but it would be on a separate site. They're, they still think that the stigma is there, and they want to move it off the site onto a brand new clean site to kind of decontaminate in that sense. In Limerick, there were two voluntary hospitals. Uh, they wanted to see them amalgamate and survive as a large central hospital, but they know the medical staff are fighting so much that the odds of this happening, you know, is it, they don't. They fear it's not going to happen, and indeed, it never did. 
The final place worth noting, and I need to learn more about it myself, is Galway. Galway has a medical school, no voluntary hospital of any description, and no acute voluntary hospital anywhere nearby. They, some years later, get a voluntary hospital in the slow, poor junkula, but that's another story, and it doesn't come into my story today. So what they're, what they're recommending is a regional hospital there, it's going to be a teaching hospital, and it's going to, it's going to really supply the needs of the area. That's really the blueprint that's set up. Time, this is published in 1936, it's not implemented, but it remains in the kind of mental mapping of Irish hospital services for a long time after. There are efforts to get cooperation in Dublin, particularly on a bed bureau, so that if hospital A is full, patients are referred to hospital B and C. It's very fraught, but they're getting a bit of that. They get a bit of that in place by, by the late 1930s. By the 1950s, however, World War II has intervened. Their hospital buildings in the country are better than they were in the early 30s. There are more beds. There's more x-ray equipment, there's more lab equipment, there's better plumbing, there's better heating and laundry facilities. But otherwise, nothing's changed very much. Um, the structure of medical and surgical care and personnel is pretty well as it was in 1933-35. You get a separate Department of Health established in 1947, uh, but this is, not, this is no NHS. It does come in with a series of rolling plans to improve health service, but they're very much demarcated bits, you know, in turn. Um, a mother and child service, which is mainly outpatient. I mean, there's some inpatient, but it's primarily outpatient, primary care. There's a national TB programme. There's a, there's a mental health, a, that's a target. There's other infectious diseases. But there's nothing that says raise, you know, create a coherent hospital system. There's nothing that, in effect, a, targets general surgical or general medical care as such. There's no political commitment to an NHS or a monolith hospital system. There does appear to be a policy of strengthening regional hospital services, but without in any way intruding on the bonded hospitals. So you see announcements in the early 50s that they're going to build a new regional public hospital in Limerick and a new one in Galway, and they, event, and they do so, it takes time. They open a regional pathology lab in Galway, and then they create, and I'll come back to this a bit in a, more, in a moment, standalone orthopaedic hospitals in, you know, about four, five or six of them scattered around the country, each with their resident orthopaedic surgeon. They're all quite small. The one in Navin, for example, is 40 beds. They fi eventually find a use for the, that county, useless county hospital in Croom, and they decide it would become an orthopaedic hospital when the other one's built. Um, treated, uh, but an awful lot of what they're doing is strengthening county-based services. They finally get around to appointing full-time resident physicians. So you have the county surgeon who's been there for some time, and then you get the county physician coming in at that stage. You then set up county clinics. doesn't happen everywhere with visiting specialists, ophthalmologists, etc., visiting. You then appoint regionally-based radiologists who are effectively itinerant radiologists and itinerant gynecologists. Uh, who are based at ADEX, but they have to travel all around the place. And I feel, you know, I feel such a profound sympathy for the unfortunate uh, who was going to be resident in Monaghan, but travelled to North Donegal, Louth and Cavan as part of his job. I mean, you know, heaven help what anybody like that would have had to do, covering hundreds and hundreds of miles. The other charged initiative, and I'll come back and summarise these in a moment, of the early 50s is Oncoria Alcia which is the Cancer Council, which was given overall responsibility for supposedly a national cancer strategy. I think we're still trying to get one. Um, it was, and under its guidance, St. Luke's Hospital, standalone cancer hospital, um, separate governance is, is constructed, in, in, opened in Dublin. 
and their provision also for some radiotherapy treatment to be done in the regional hospital in Galway and, and, and in one of the hospitals in Cork, can't remember which one. Now I'm going to pause and take stock at this stage and see what we've got. You've got kind of a funny system. You've got capital funding for public health services coming from the hospitals commission, though increasingly those funds are actually being topped up by the Department of Exchequer. So the hospitals commission and the Department of Health kind of blur in a strange way. Current funding is coming mainly from local taxation, local authority rates. There is a top up, but the, the primary driver is the is a county-based uh, local authority charge. And my hypothesis is that the reason you set up the standalone orthopaedic hospitals and the cancer quangle is that they can't work out how to fund something that is super county within this health system. They can do the capital bits all right. But how are you going to pay for something at this regional if all your if your if your core funding mechanism is is county based? Uh, you can do the radiologists by charging you know so many sessions to county X and so many sessions to county Y, but basically what you what you've done is you're you're left with a county based system that uh, lacks the, the political and other capacity to gear up to something above this county level. The other thing that I think plays into it there is uh, some stuff I've been reading recently on Christian democracy, and you know you were talking about corporatism, John, yesterday. And one of the things that comes through in Christian democracy and its whole approach to welfare and health is targeted initiatives. Instead of a kind of an umbrella intervention, you intervene on very specific targeted basis. And here we've got cancer coming in. Here we've got orthopedics coming in. So that, in a sense, this proliferation of entities also appears to be something that may be coming through that. But perhaps I'm wrong about that. But anyway, the point I'm making is that the system is not gearing up to any kind of successful regional basis. Uh, what comes through, there's a crowd called the National Health Council that writes a certain amount of advisory reports. By the end of the 50s, they say, uh, the radiologists, the regional radiologist thing is not just not working. Uh, the county surgeon are not referring x-rays. They're going to be doing their own x-rays and they're reading them or misreading them. Their the referral is not working properly. The orthopedic hospitals are doing an awful lot of uh, run-of-the-mill, uh, very simple fractures. The referrals are not going through. So in other words, the whole basis of a, of, of a referral base, regional referral base is not working even at the level of those services. And in 1968, the Fitzgerald Report on Future Hospital Services noted that the Galway Regional Hospital was built as a regional hospital for the Western counties, but because its staff and facilities have not been adequately developed, it has functioned largely as a local hospital for County Galway. Now, it has more staff than, than others, but can I say, I can <coughs> tell you when any hospital got a new boiler house uh, or a, you know, something like that, to get documentation of the number of staff and what they are per hospital. Um, the only thing available are the medical directories, and even they, you're dependent on what they fill in. So this is a true nightmare that I'm, going, I'm trying to work through. What Fitzgerald goes on and says is that specialist treatments are provided almost entirely by voluntary hospitals, <coughs> and then this is a quote, largely due to the more elastic methods of staffing employed by the voluntary hospitals, permitting greater specialisation. And this is actually critical. If you make a specialist appointment to a regional hospital, you had to get the approval of the local health authority, i.e. county by and large, and you have to approve a full salary, and this will create additional costs on the rates. I know part of it might have exchequer, but it doesn't matter, because by the mid-1950s, if not before, there is growing opposition to the rising cost of health services and rates. It's a serious campaign. 
So to get such an appointment through, which would have been pricey, would have been quite difficult, particularly if the benefits are going to be spread across the entire region. By comparison, you appoint somebody to a voluntary hospital, the appointment is not salaried. What Peter described is absolutely correct. They don't get a salary. The most immediate challenge if you appoint a new specialist in a voluntary hospital is to get him, and they are very vehement at this stage, allocated beds for this new surgeon or physician. Uh, the equipment, they'll have some equipment, lab and operating theatre time. But here the different treatment of voluntary and local authority hospitals is relevant. The hospital trust provides capital funding for both, but it also picks up the deficits for voluntary hospitals, though admittedly there's often targets for them. Uh, Fitzgerald noted that a remarkably large part of the time of most voluntary hospital consultants was spent treating patients in respect of whom they got almost no payment. Few of their private patients actually went into these hospitals. They were tended to be treated in the private nursing homes that would have been attached to the large voluntary hospitals. So they're not the private patients are cross-subsidising the specialist treatment in the voluntary hospitals, and they're not even taking up beds in it at the time. The voluntary hospitals also have much greater freedom for innovation. The fact is that most of the practitioners, especially in the teaching hospitals, have had advanced training in the UK or the USA. They've got the skills and the awareness of the new treatments. A lot of them tend to be members of international professional bodies, quite active in them on the committees. This, again, will, will, will bring, make them aware of this. They do these travelling trips abroad. They have these travelling gangs who head off to places to see stuff and uh, give it, get talks. And you know, They have a whole system of continued professional development that they've built into their lifestyle and everything. Probably much harder. I, I don't know what the details are. How would you get funding for it? How would the important county physician forever have, have got financial support to do this. I don't really know. I need to look at it. The other point is that um, so basically all you need to do was convince the hospital board and your fellow uh, your fellow med medical practitioners or maybe the reverend mother whatever uh, that, that would be a good idea to do this. It's easier to do. It's, it's more open to voluntary networking and everything else like that. Uh, they're also subject to much less control by the Department of Health. And to give an example of this, I'm going to look at a, 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 a very interesting squabble between the Department of Health and Dublin's Mater Misericordia Hospital relating to the Mater's plans to carry out cardiac surgery. In 1950, when the Mater got funding from the hospital commission to build a new nurse's home, they get a commitment that the vacant space would be used to provide beds and diagnostic space for a new cardiology unit and they got the money separately for, for the, the necessary you know, technical equipment. In 1954, when the hospital informed the Department of Health that they wanted to recruit an assistant physician to work full-time in the cardiology unit. Assistant physician is a sub-consultant level, which they're beginning to bring in at this stage. They're salaried. Uh, and it's a position for a younger doctor who will probably become a consultant in a few years' time. They mentioned they were going to hire a surgeon they, they said they wanted to hire this position. They also said, by the way, we're also going to hire a surgeon to carry out cardiac surgery, a specialist surgeon and that. Now, they do appoint the assistant cardiologist, it was T.B. Cunahan, who'd been trained in London and Boston. And then to beef up their cardiology service, they also sent one of their leading nuns over to London for training in, 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 in cardiac medicine. In December 55, however, the Minister for Health, T.F.O. Higgins, uh, wrote to the sister in charge, and you know, we're, you know, with big names here, I'm, I'm bringing, bringing this big sister Regina to, uh, it's about time we got to a great woman in the story, sister Regina, <laughs> and uh, got the letter um, and, uh, telling her that the Department of Health had not authorised any space or equipment to carry out cardiac surgery. 
and the minister, this is TFO Higgins, said there was plenty of cardiac surgery being done around anyway. There was no need for this matter. was surplus to needs. be a retrograde step, dilution of specialist expertise. Sturgina, a very formidable woman, replied at length, showing that all the equipment they'd bought, all the space they were using, had been notified to the department and authorised. I'm not going to give you the details of where the gas catheterisation unit went, but it's all, it's all in file. And then she went on and told him that a teaching hospital, the size and importance of the matter, should have a cardiac unit that provides not only the best services to patients, but modern training for medical students and interns. In order that the training, and this I think is interesting in light of some stuff I'll say later, shall not again fall behind the standards set, indeed now required by other Western countries, the cardiac unit should be capable of development. The inability to offer surgical treatment to cardiac patients investigated would deny us that capacity for development, would mean a growing proportion of cardiac patients would not be treated at all in this hospital, and carry the danger of our being bypassed in time. This is more especially true because the number of cardiac conditions being surgically treated in advanced countries is constantly growing as a result of advances in surgery and as a result of the increasing incidence of cardiac disease. She goes on, in no teaching hospital that I know of is there a cardiac unit in which cardiac surgery is not practiced. On the contrary, in cardiology, the borderline between medicine and surgery in all good centres is already terribly common to both. There is absolutely no clean-cut distinction between the medical and surgical treatment of heart disease, and the trend is for them to be inseparable. And she goes on to say, the additional equipment and space required to carry out the surgery, given that they have a well-equipped cardiology unit, was negligible, and just to keep them happy, she would absorb the cost of the assistant surgeon in her budget herself, and he didn't need to pay for it. So the minister responds anyway, and whinges a bit about it, and goes on and says, as regards the carrying out of cardiac surgery in the matter, I'm afraid I can't accept the consideration which Mother General put forward. But this is the sentence that I think is critical. The type and scope of the cardiac work to be carried out in the matter is, however, a matter for the hospital authorities, and I do not propose to say any more about it. In other words, what happens inside the doors of that hospital is up to them. He has no right to interfere, and he acknowledges that. He then goes on and says, but if there's any question of getting money from public funds at my disposal, I fear in conscience I'll have to satisfy myself the money is essential and being provided in the most economical manner. In other words, so that, that's his cop-out, that's his get-out clause. But basically, he can decide not to give them capital funding for something, or not to give them the money for the equipment, but they can decide what to do. It's a voluntary hospital. They, he has no say over what they're doing in that particular hospital. And she notes that. She's delighted in her reply. She says she's delighted to learn that he acknowledges that anyway. Uh, there's all kinds of other examples where during this period, voluntary hospitals get money for additional beds, new nurses' homes, new boiler house, whatever. Space freed is invariably used to put in a new line of treatment. Uh, the matter does cardiac surgery. It also pioneers open heart surgery in Ireland. Uh, the Chargeable Infirmary in Jervis Street pioneered renal dialysis in 1958, initially uh, as a short-term emergency treatment in cases such as renal failure in pregnancy. In 1964, they attempted the first cadaver transplant in Ireland. The history of the hospital, uh, written by, by a medical practitioner, notes that in the early years, the renal unit was not popular with the Department of Health. A new form of treatment, which looked like being very expensive, had been started without prior consultation. It was not until 1964 that the department relented and gave the unit some support. So again, you get a, a, major, a major surgical initiative being carried out 
uh, by Bondley Hospital in, in, in the teeth of opposition from the Department of Health uh, and without any initial funding for it at all. There are other examples of that. The metabolic, metabolic unit that opened in St. Vincent's Hospital in 1961 was funded entirely from the hospital's own resources, though they actually did bring in the Minister for Health to open it. And when he performed the opening, he promised he'd give them some support for the lab resources necessary. But they've already carried it out and they put that in. Now, I'm conscious that a lot of the information that you get to, to support this, because Oodlesmore cases, come from hospital histories who are written by men who were intimately involved. And I think we obviously all know we need to be careful about those kind of histories. But I still think, and there were probably cases where there was investment that might have been as wise, there may have been overlap and all the rest. But I will also say that there is no, if the initiative had not taken place there, I do not see where in the hospital in the health system at the time in Ireland, there would have been the initiative to drive forward uh, advances in treatments such as renal dialysis, uh, cardiology, and so forth. And I do think, given the climate at the time, uh, and the serious difficulty in getting approval uh, from the Department of Health, that probably would have been very, and the focus, as another doctor said, on bricks and mortar, as opposed to the you know <coughs> medical expertise, it would have been very difficult to get it. So anyway, I want to move on to two other aspects, which, in one hand, increase one which increases capacity, but secondly, changes the nature of the relationship, and second, that I think really pushes in at the boundary hospitals. And uh, this is uh, I'm going to start with the 1953 Health Act. Now, the 53 Health Act. It's actually not much written about in Irish history. It's extremely significant. It extends freer, heavily subsidised hospital treatment to approximately 90% of the population. And for the first time, it gives public assistance cases. The people who would have gone to, to Virginia's Workhouse Hospital, the poor 30% or so, the dispensary patients, uh, who are eligible for medical cards, gives them the right to specialist treatment. That's actually stated that they were right to specialist treatment. Um, up to then, the, the impression seems to be that they, they went to county hospitals, and whether they went beyond a county hospital, if the Plumas Act of them, uh, is not clear. And if they went to a county hospital, uh, they would not have been seen by anybody with any great expertise other than the soldier surgeon. Um, the other suggestion that comes through if you read the debates around that act is that uh, this also means that the catchment of some, particularly those ex-workhouse local authority hospitals that are still carrying that, uh, the catchment, the number of people coming into them, uh, it, the type of person going into these hospitals is actually changing as well. There are more people coming in and more people who are making a modest payment are coming in. In other words, it's getting into a more middle-class patient base, but that's something else that needs to be looked at. But the Act anyway does say that, the, that a public assistant patients have a right to specialist treatment, and if it cannot be provided in the local authority hospitals, the local authority would enter an agreement with the voluntary teaching hospitals, particularly voluntary teaching hospitals in Dublin City. Now, that's actually the first time that the voluntary hospitals in Dublin got direct payment from the state for treating patients. Um, and it occurred to me that, pa that paper about uh, psychiatric care and uh, Dublin, Dublin big uh, whinging about the cost of health services is because Dublin Corporation only begins to pay the proper cost of health services for the first time after 1953. Up to then, they're getting the poor of Dublin treated on the very, very cheap, subsidised by the voluntary hospitals. 
For example, all they were paying up to then was the proceeds of a shilling in the pound on the rates. In the early 1950s, Dublin Corporation coughed up 120,000, which was divvied up across the voluntary hospitals in the city on the basis of the number of patients they'd taken in. Uh, somebody, the Department of Health did a retrospective calculation. The matter under that was getting, uh, where is it, uh, just over 11,500 for that. Uh, the Department of Health did a calculation that once the 1953 charges, in other words, proper local authority level charges, which is applied elsewhere, were applied in Dublin, the matters, the matters would get 125% more. In other words, they went from 11,500 up to almost 26,000 overnight for that. So Dublin, Dublin Corporation, for the first time, under the 53 Act, begins to pay a, a, ro a remotely adequate cost of the treatment of the sick poor. And that comes in at that stage. Uh, the money is put in a... The other thing that changes is there are payments for outpatient clinics for the first time as well uh, to the voluntary hospitals. So there's a significant new stream of income coming into the voluntary hospitals. The money in question is placed in a consultant's pool, and it's divvied up among the consultants, though in some instances it's actually used to hire salaried junior doctors. The interesting thing is they're being paid, but it's not a direct payment to these consultants. I think that's very important in the whole development of, of, of health services in Ireland. Now, this is the first time that physicians or surgeons attached to voluntary hospitals were paid by the state. In his history of St. Vincent's Hospital, Charlie Meenan, who was a consultant there, noted that many senior members returned to the outpatients department and conducted clinics in their own speciality. In other words, they haven't been there for years, but they're not come back in to do it. He also says that it's a landmark event in the history of voluntary hospitals. The system which had characterised the voluntary hospital ethos for over 200 years was now at an end. No longer did the consultant treat the patients in the wards and outpatients without charge and make their livelihood from the sick, from the rich sick. So in other words, it's the first time that these physicians and surgeons want to have to be paid. A less temperate response to the act, which wasn't popular with many of the legal medical uh, practitioners, was, was that of the taxing master, I think it was Rory O'Hanlon, uh, who was involved in the board of the Matter Hospital, who had a memo... The, according to a memo taken down by the wonderful note-taker John Charles McQuaid, Archbishop of Dublin, claimed that doctors in voluntary hospitals were not paid hands like the boiler men or nurses or maids. I don't think the boiler men or nurses or maids would quite seen it that way. Now, bluntly, I haven't seen any evidence that the 53 Act intrudes on the inner workings of the hospital. Again, I think the money comes in, but certainly clinical and other autonomy seems to remain very much with these hospitals. More immediate threat comes, however, from the visitations of the American Medical Association and the General Medical Council to examine the quality of education and training in Irish medical schools, which is the topic of a recent article in Social History of Medicine by Greta Jones. Now, Greta's paper looks primarily at the US side of the story. I'm looking at the domestic. The key one of the key criticisms of these visiting authorities was that the medical schools had no control over the clinical teaching in the hospitals, particularly in the Bonte hospitals. They had no control over the teaching content. Most critically, they had no control over who was giving it. They had no control over the clinical appointments. Now, this is actually an extremely heated issue. In the UCD hospitals, which are the only ones I've looked at so far, the issue prompted a series and lengthy standoff between the university and the Bonte hospitals. It went on for several years, long legal agreements, uh, coming to the brink, about to sign them, and then the Bonte hospitals go back, uh, back off again. 
And the fears are that UCD will try and control the hospitals. Um, I haven't looked at the Trinity side. I'll be amazed knowing the particularism of these boundary hospitals. It's similar. A paranoid can come in there. Uh, this was a topic that seriously divided the medical profession, uh, pretty much I suspect on, on, on age grounds. The younger, in Vincent's anyway, the younger doctors and surgeons often straight back from postgraduate training in Britain or the US where they had seen professorial units in hospitals where they had where they saw the gap between the training there and what was on offer in Dublin, were very conscious that if, our, if Dublin medicine was, was not to fall behind, they needed to up their game. And they were very much in favour of it, and they really pushed it. And the lead in bringing about reform of the hospital associated with Trinity comes from a younger cohort of, 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 of medics in, in, in the hospital. But the introduction of a university presence into the appointments, requirement, the requirement that there's interview, references, review of CVs, threatens these very long-established closed corporations, and I use the word closed corporations advisedly, where medical and surgical dynasties were common, not always on grounds of merit, where recruitment was almost exclusively from those trained and acculturated by the hospital and those known to be sympathetical to those in the hospital. Uh, a key consideration with the requirement uh, by the universities that any clinical professor appointed by the university would have to be allocated beds within the hospital and patients within the hospital. So if the university appoints somebody, he has to get beds and patients in the hospital. Um, and uh, as statutory university appointment, a clinical professor couldn't be dismissed by the hospital, and this raises serious issues. The Sisters of Mercy in the matter wanted to limit the appointment of professors to the existing consultant staff. In other words, keep it an insider competition. They were told that was certainly not, not, not in question. They became absolutely paranoid that hordes of doctors and surgeons trained by St. Vincent's would march across the Liffey and take over their hospital. Vincent seemed to be quite smarmy and smug. They didn't worry about the matter cloud coming in on the top of them. Um, they were also... Yeah, yeah, I know. There was there was also fear that the university might appoint a professor who was not a practicing Catholic. Um, the dispute, as I said, really divides the medical profession. There's divisions within the younger and older generation of the medical professions. There's also divisions between the medical professions and the hospital board, the non-medical professions in the hospital, which is actually quite interesting. And it calls into question again the freedom of a hospital and medical practice in their hospital, a freedom which O'Higgins has acknowledged, because it might be Trinity College Dublin that's determining uh, clinical practice now, or, or, or UCD. Now, there's an awful lot more to be written or researched on this, but what I can say is that this, uh, this oversight, this, this need to meet GMC standards, introduces a new element of external rigour into the boundary hospitals, in the case of the hospitals associated with Trinity, which are smaller, more numerous than the UCD ones, it eventually results in them federating and deciding to arrange specialism within separate hospitals, which really did drive change. Within the UCD family, I suspect I haven't got that, that it did also help to drive uh, specialism with, with the, within the family in order to ensure the, the clinical specialities were adequately covered. I'm going to end very briefly with the 1970 Act, which introduces regional systems into Ireland at a time when I, I think you said, John, there were kind of been regional, regional boards and everything were being phased out in Britain, I think you said, yeah, so we, we do get behind. It does. Um, the Fitzgerald Report, which I mentioned already, which was written, the, the entire board of the Fitzgerald Report were actually medical practitioners from both voluntary and, you know, different tiers of the whole hospital system. It's quite interesting. And 
they've come up with the 68 report, which would have radical restructuring of the hospital system on a regional network involving very significant rationalisation of services. It would have brought voluntary and public hospitals under one control. Um, Fitzgerald was rejected mainly because of violent opposition from county hospitals and local political interests. Uh, so the 1970 legislation keeps kind of a two-tier system with the funding for the public hospitals coming via regional health authorities. The voluntary hospitals are funded separately. They're funded directly from the Department of Health. It's a very strange binary system. There was a degree of consolidation of specialist services through this very large unwieldy entity called Cordon and Hospital, a very large board which would have to approve, yes, gentry, you know, uh, gentry, urinary disease goes there. Uh, and something as radiology or uh, neurology goes there. In other words, they had to decide, yes, we need that particular specialist position. And that, was, that got approval of all consultant appointments, including academic clinical appointments. So I'm going to finish this point. Uh, as I said, a lot to, there's, no, there's more questions in this paper than I've answered, I think, at this stage. The first thing I think we need to recognize is that there's a very significant contribution made by voluntary hospitals. <coughs> Firstly, in treating the sick poor in Dublin at well below the cost that would have applied if it had been borne if it, if it had been borne by the local authorities and by the local taxpayers. Secondly, there's a very significant contribution in the advancing of clinical medicine in Ireland, particularly in this period, you know, from the 1930s up to the 1970s. But that autonomy of voluntary, and they were treated, they regarded themselves as autonomous units, but that autonomy had its price, introverted inbred quality of clinical teaching, and presumably uh, the scale of clinical care at times, and probably duplication. The interesting thing is that the key driver for change in the story I've told there came actually more through the GMC and the universities than it did actually through the state, and I find that quite intriguing. Um, as for the hospital systems itself, you can see the potential emergence of a more systemic approach in the 1970s with the emergence of regional health authorities uh, and Cornyn and Ospigea, but that ignores the persistence of local politics and the parish pump in Ireland. And I think finally, the thing I would like to do most to try and get a better angle on what's happening is to, if I could understand the regional hospital in Galway, a teaching hospital that is purely a local authority hospital, and how its staffing structures and relationship worked out, I think it would give me a lovely comparison with the more, with the voluntary hospital base, a, a Dublin story. But anyway, that's where I am at the moment. As I said, a lot more to do. Thank you very much.